Hello and welcome to Think Fit Be Fit Podcast Network. My name is Jennifer Schwartz. I'm the hostess and creator of this podcast network. Today you are listening to the second episode of our new show, Fitness for Consumption. This show is hosted by Gregory Gordon and Paul Juris. They share more than 50 years of collective knowledge and experience offering a human movement point of view on all things fitness. So just think of this as science, human movement science at the PhD level applied to the everyday in and out of your fitness. In each episode, they'll bring their own unique perspective on wellness and performance and empower you to ask better questions, think more critically, and take better control of your own personal health and wellness. For me, it's a mental supercharge to add to my fitness approach, and I know it will be helpful for you. This episode, titled... The fitness ecosystem is insightful and holistic about how to approach fitness. And I'm really excited for you guys to have these new perspectives because I truly believe it can influence every single workout that you have from here on out. Please check out both of our both of our Instagram accounts at thinkfitbefit underscore podcast and fitness for consumption spelled out F-O-R for consumption. They are just getting started, but I know that both of us, we really want to hear from you and what you're learning from these episodes. Not only that, we are giving you a chance to ask us what's up and (laughs) what kind of questions you guys have about the content and about your own approach to fitness. So feel free to head on over to Instagram and follow, uh, share, DM. We're here for it. I hope you enjoy the second episode of Fitness for Consumption, and I cannot wait to hear from you. Have a great week. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us And you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely. 
and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to Fitness for Consumption. I'm your host, Gregory Gordon, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Paul Juris. Mm-hmm. And PJ, we left the last segment um, discussing that exercise is really a set of physical problems that need to be solved. And That's right. we, we left it off with the question of, well, so if it's a problem, what are the solutions we need to solve these problems? And that's, that's a good question. It is a good um, question, right? We have to <laughs> solve problems. How do we do it? Right. So before we dive deeper into that and get into um, some more multifaceted solutions, mm-hmm. I like to start with something really obvious and simple. Although maybe it's like common sense where you think it's really obvious and simple, but it really isn't. And that is before I, if, if I'm giving an exercise to someone, um, the, before they even perform the exercise, the first thing I always ask right before they're about to do it is, do you understand what I'm asking you to do? So making sure that you have an intention that someone understands what they're actually trying to accomplish. Absolutely. And intention is really interesting because what we're talking about here are intentional movements, not reflexes. So we'll Mm -hmm. leave reflexes aside for a minute. Yep. But yeah, when there is a task to be done, the first part of my solution is my ability to understand what the task is. And you've made a point in conversations that we've had in the past that Trainers don't necessarily understand that or recognize that that's an issue to be solved. And so do you want to comment on that? Because I think that's an important thing to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. So in my experience, um, you know, a lot of times if we see someone, if we give someone an exercise, first of all, we shouldn't overestimate how familiar they might be with this exercise. So even though we might be doing this exercise on our own, three times a week or something like that. Like this individual might not have that level of experience with a certain exercise. So what I've always found helpful is that anytime I'm doing an exercise with someone and we'll go over uh, the task requirements, I'll always end it by saying, do you understand what I'm asking you to do? Because I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Because a lot of times there can be a subtle difference in what they think I'm asking them to do and what I actually want them to do. And if if they don't understand what I'm asking them to do, and then the movement to me is outside of this bandwidth of error that I think is acceptable for performing this exercise, before I open the store and start thinking about all these possible dysfunctions that there might be, mm-hmm. the first thing I want to make sure that we're crystal clear on is that are we on the same page? Do they understand what I'm asking them to do? Mm. And, you know, part of the, there's a nuance in there, I think. And that nuance is, do they understand how to do it versus do they understand what it is they're doing in the first place? And I think we immediately jump to, here's how you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk later in future episodes about that very notion of giving people the solution or just giving them the problem. But what they need to understand is the problem, not the solution. So getting back to the bench press example, the problem is to get the bar from a position above the chest or some people banging it off their chest, however (laughs) they want to do it. 
but the problem is to get the bar to a point in space above them as they're laying on the bench. That's the problem. The, the problem with the dumbbell curl is to get the dumbbell from an extended position of the arm, which means the dumbbell down by the leg, to a point right in front of the shoulder. That's mm-hmm. the problem. Do people understand that? So it's a task and it's an understanding and awareness of what that task is. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, if you put 10 people in front of you and you just tell them all to do a squat, you're going to see more than likely 10 different squats emerge in front of you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. part of the reason for that is people don't necessarily understand what the goal of the movement is. Yeah. So it could be they don't understand what to do. Look, there's certainly limb length differences and and range of motion differences and strength. And so there's a lot of things that can go into it. But the most overlooked and the most obvious place to start should be just do they understand what they're being asked to do, what the problem is. Okay, so we've established that. And I think the next question is, all right, what's next? I mean, first is understanding and now we've, we're facing this problem that is a task. It has these biomechanical constraints, these what we call regulatory features of the environment, which is a human mm-hmm. movement science term. What it means is there's a feature there that's just forcing you to behave in a certain way. So the biomechanics, the load, the inertia, those things. So the next part of the problem for us is do we have the physical capabilities what we refer to as physical substrates. Do we have the physical capabilities to achieve the task in the first place? Right. So let's go back to the bench press example. So if there's 100 pounds on the bar, I need to be able to generate at least 101 pounds of strength to actually move it. Because if I just have the same amount of strength and I'm pushing on the bar, I'm not going to actually be able to overcome it. So... Yep. So force in that case, force yep. application of being able to apply enough force to the bar. And and what happens if, for example, I have an anterior shoulder joint laxity? How is that going to affect my ability to do this bench press? Yeah. So if I'm looking at it, if I'm your trainer and you've, we, we know there's a known pathology at your right shoulder, it might, and both hands are fixed to the same bar, It's totally possible as you're lowering the bar that your right arm doesn't want to move down as far as your left arm. It may look in some way asymmetric to me in the way you're moving both arms, and you may not be able to generate the same amount of force on your right arm. Um, So it's definitely going to influence, and especially if upon moving that arm, if you you experience pain as, as you begin to move, that's certainly going to alter the way you try to move that bar. Mm -hmm. So... Certainly, structural stability is a prerequisite to being able to solve these problems. Mm -hmm. If I have a problem that I'm solving through movement and I've got structural instability, if I've got ankle instability, which is a very common thing, especially Mm -hmm. when people are always rolling their ankles, Mm -hmm. uh, if I have, you know, any kind of a ligamentous sprain anywhere, Mm Um, structural stability is a required component. We need to be aware of whether people have it. Now, that's different, by the way, from looking at somebody moving and saying that you have an instability because of some arbitrary test that we're giving someone. Right, right? or just looking at it and assigning a certain dysfunction based on the way something just looks to us. 
That's right. I mean, this I digress a little bit, but this is a kind of funny story. I was doing a workshop with someone uh, years ago, and we were watching people do single leg squats. Single leg squat is another mm-hmm. example of what's the problem. The problem is I got to lower myself toward the ground, and then I have to get myself to a standing position, and, and I'm on one leg. And mm-hmm. so then there's the physical component of that or the biomechanical constraints. I've got to overcome my body mass. I have to maintain my balance. I have to maintain a posture. Those things are challenging me. And so this other person was watching somebody do a single leg squat. And if you think about it, for those who have some familiarity with the biomechanics of single leg squats, in order to maintain your balance, you have to shift your your center of mass over your single foot base of support. Right. So when you do that, naturally what's going to happen is your stance hip is going to adduct and even internally rotate a little mm-hmm. bit. So that's normal. That's how you achieve a single leg stance and, and a balanced position and single leg stance. So we're standing there looking at this person do it. And all of a sudden, the guy that I'm with points at the performer's hip and says, it's a Trendelenburg sign. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, Trendelenburg sign? Like, where did that come from? You know, you talk about assigning dysfunction based on something that you're looking at. I think he not only did that, but he also said it because someone told him to say it. And he was just repeating what he heard. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we get into this problem. Uh, Incidentally, this is like totally off the cuff, but I was looking at LinkedIn uh, two days ago and there's a physical therapist who's always posting stuff on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting. And he posted a video of a patient doing a single leg squat. Mm -hmm. And there were a whole bunch of comments in there. And then somebody weighs in and says, well, this person must have tight quads Mm -hmm. because I can see that her patella is moving up and out. And I'm thinking, how the (laughs) heck can you see that? I mean, really, it's it's a cell phone video in a sagittal plane. And this person is able to see the patella being malaligned and mistracked. I mean, really, folks, uh, we, we need to get over ourselves a little bit because this stuff's not possible. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting conversation on a couple levels because, look, we want trainers, we want people that are exercising themselves to be to observe, right, to look at things and like, look, it, it's not that you shouldn't look and see things and say, huh, okay, that's, you know, but in – that's the thing that like you, you look, you observe, if you see something consistently over a period of time and you have the qualifications and skill to then make a specific diagnosis, that's great. But if you don't have that specific skill set, then I think the responsible thing to do is just, you notice something and then you either refer out, or if you're just an exerciser at home, you, you go to a qualified professional to get some professional testing or assessments. But, um, you know, it's, it's nuanced because we do want people to observe. Uh, but at the same time, we don't, it's, I also see videos like that all the time. And it's not even that I'm so concerned that if this person here speaking about in particular thinks he sees a Trendelenburg gate, it's more that my, my concern is that, hey, first of all, if you start telling people they have a certain syndrome and you're not qualified to do so, you could be raising alarm when there's no alarm necessary. Absolutely. And B, probably what happens more often is that um, you, you think you're seeing something. So they're coming, most people are coming 
to the gym and hiring trainers, as we know, primarily 90% of the time to lose weight. So instead of their training session focused on things that would help them toward, towards their goals, now I'm spending 90% of their training session and maybe their $200 an hour, depending on where you live, based on fixing this problem. That's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. So what a, you're doing is the creating right a problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're creating a problem that doesn't exist. And by the way, for anyone who's unaware of what a Trendelenburg sign is, uh, when you watch somebody doing a one-legged squat and they have a rapid, sudden, and violent adduction loss of control at the hip, that's a Trendelenburg sign. And it's an indication of an injury or a neuropathology it's not adduction at the hip because you have to maintain your balance. And, and Gigi, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are paying 200 bucks an hour. They want to get fit. They want to get in shape. They want to be motivated. And here we are telling them they have some type of a clinical dysfunction. How motivating is that? So, right. Especially when it, it's unqualified. Exactly. So like, let's leave that for medical professionals Mm -hmm. and let's dispense with some of these observations that result in grossly erroneous conclusions. Mm -hmm. And by the way, even medical professionals, there's an old saying in medicine that when you hear hoofbeats, you don't look for zebras. And Mm -hmm. what that means is typically the most obvious thing is the thing that is to be dealt with, mm-hmm. not looking for the most exotic problem, but looking for something that's quite obvious and it's right in front of your face. And that's where you start. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we should probably pull this back to where the conversation was. And we were talking about structural stability as a prerequisite to solving problems. And these prerequisites we refer to as substrates. So Mm -hmm. substrates are the things that we have to bring to the table so that we can find a solution to the problems that we're trying to solve. Okay. Right. That sounded funny. Finding a solution to the problem we're solving. So that's, you know, okay. So it's English. So, (laughs) (laughs) so um, let me provide another example, muscle tension. Yeah. So if we're going to perform something like a dumbbell press or uh-huh. a barbell press, we need to be able to generate tension in our muscles. We need to accelerate this mass because the mass is a biomechanical constraint. Mm-hmm. So we need to be able to exert force against the bar. We need strength and in some cases power. Mm-hmm. So those are what we call substrates, the strength and power to be able to move, accelerate objects effectively. What else do you think we should be able to do? So range of motion could be another substrate we would think about. So let's say I'm really interested in yoga and I go to this yoga class and the first thing, you know, in the first five minutes, the teacher is putting their leg behind their head and, you know, the whole class is (laughs) moving and eyeing. Yeah. And so look, if I, first of all, structurally, I may or may not just have that ability to do so, even if I practice yoga every day for the rest of my life, just based on my structure. But if I attempt to get there, then I'm going to have to work specifically to do things to increase my range of motion. And that could include specific strength training. It could include some stretching. You know, there's different modalities we could use to do that. But if that is my end goal, then that is a substrate I'm going to need to develop in order to have the range of motion to accomplish that specific task. That's right. And there are a lot of things potentially that could affect range of motion. Mm -hmm. So we talk about 
not having the joint structure or maybe not the flexibility within the muscles themselves, but even having too much adipose tissue or having mm-hmm. too much muscle mass mm-hmm. around a joint can potentially restrict the range of motion. Or just changes in the bone itself, just some st- structural changes to the bone. Like my arthritic knee, right? So, <laughs> you know, right. It's, that affects my range of motion and absolutely. So that is a substrate. I'm going to throw another one in there. We talked about it already is equilibrium or balance. Mm-hmm. With things like a one-legged squat or any of these one-legged exercises that we do, or in some cases when we're using unstable surfaces, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Right. Um, And how about something even not so exotic? Not that a single-leg squat is necessarily exotic, but so because equilibrium, I think, gets uh, glossed over all the time. So even if I'm doing a really simple bicep curl, and let's say mm-hmm. I'm using one arm at a time. So there's an, I've got an asymmetrical load now. I'm just doing my right arm 15 pounds. So it's something that isn't obvious, but as I'm doing this bicep curl, my center of mass, if I've got the, bi- if I've got the dumbbell on my right side, my center of mass is shifting slightly to my right side. And my body has to come up with some strategy if I'm standing to to maintain my equilibrium just as I'm doing the simple bicep curl. So it's not anything we would ever think of, but it's something that's happening and we should be aware of on some level. It's, you know, it's for people who are doing it, it's very intuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much so for the observer, for the trainers. And, and that's such a great example. And I use the example of a curl bar curl. So it's mm-hmm. not a dumbbell curl, but it's a curl bar with weights on it. So let's say you have 30 pounds on this bar As you're lifting the bar, as you're flexing the elbows and the bar is moving out in front of you, your center of mass is shifting in that direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your center of mass is moving toward the front edge of your base of support. It's making you unstable. So people naturally, intuitively lean back a little Mm -hmm. bit Mm -hmm. in order to bring their center of mass back over their base of support and actually closer to the lumbar spine. Mm -hmm. Almost every trainer that I have ever seen observing that will say that the person's cheating mm-hmm. because they're leaning back, but they're mm-hmm. not cheating. They're solving the equilibrium problem and it's the right way to do it or else you're going to put a lot of stress on the back and that's not what you want to be doing. So it's interesting that what we need to do to solve a problem and the way we're observing people doing it and then the interventions that we impose on people because mm-hmm. we see things that they're doing naturally, um, you know, we need to take stock of that because it does affect our clients. It affects our own uh, solutions. And mm-hmm. it ultimately, it can affect the way we develop or potentially put ourselves at risk. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, how about muscular endurance, right? So yeah. we, need, we need to be able to maintain muscle contraction over a period of time. Um, or metabolic endurance, if I'm running, how much energy can I produce? How long can I maintain my energy production? So do I have enough stamina to perform a task, right? So there are probably others, but I think we're getting the point across, right? So in order for us to solve a problem, we need to have these substrates, these prerequisite abilities mm-hmm. that we deploy in trying to solve the problem. If we don't have that, if we don't have that, then we can't solve the problem. So that's actually why we go to the gym. Because, you know, most of us go to the gym as to, it's the means to creating some end. And so actually the problem in a gym is an exercise and we're challenging ourselves to come up with a solution in order to solve that problem so we can reap the benefits of what we think this exercise is going to give us. 
Yeah, I think most people don't really look at it that way. So if you ask someone, well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to work out. Oh, really? I thought you were going to solve a bunch of problems. I mean, <laughs> people people don't really look at it that way. But yeah, the reality is every exercise that we do is a problem. And then when you look mm-hmm. at the trainer-client interaction and what that relationship is all about, it's the trainer looking at the client and understanding the kinds of problems that need to be presented so that the client can find solutions to these problems and engage in some form of activity or exercise along the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what it is. What we're doing is we're matching our substrates with the constraints of the task. Mm -hmm. That's how we exercise. And really to get fit from this, what we're trying to do is create a reason for us to change something, right? To adapt. So if our solution perfectly matches the problem. We do solve the problem, mm-hmm. but what's the likelihood that our level of fitness is going to change if that's our approach to it? Yeah, so that's another interesting rabbit hole to go down. So on one end, I think people listening to our podcast could be some people that are professional trainers who are Mm -hmm. very, very well conditioned. And look, when you get to that level of conditioning, it is hard to keep finding new ways of stimulating your body and getting new adaptations. What if, you know, if you've really committed to strength and conditioning and you're, and you're at a very high level of fitness and you've really built up substrates, then you have to find new ways to keep challenging to provide a new stimulus to to create new adaptations. On the other end of the spectrum, we could have some people listening that really don't exercise at all. And not to belabor this point, which I feel like I have somewhat already, but look, just moving, if you're not moving, is good. So we don't want mm-hmm. to denigrate that at all. And so That's one right. of the groups I study with, the Neuroorth- Neuroorthopedic Institute, the NOI group, um, so they have a... Uh, saying I like called motion is lotion. And the truth is, so in the very beginning of this episode, the fundamental reason we spoke about why we move is to eat, to sustain life. Mm -hmm. And joints actually need to eat too. And I know this sounds like a weird analogy, but the way joints actually get nutrition is through motion. And so spinal joints are a little bit different than knee joints, but essentially all joints need the compression, need to be smushed together for lack of a better term. And it's that smushing together, it's the tension the muscles are placing on these joints that actually help release the fluid that these joints need in order to be healthy. So Mm -hmm. the joints need to eat too. So um, just moving is, you know, that's a good place to start if you're not moving. But if you are moving and you're already at some level, uh, level of conditioning, then we need to keep figuring out ways of stimulating, of, of changing the stimulus so that we can create new adaptations. And by the way, one last thing on that is that I think we tend to think linearly on that a lot in terms of load. Like if I've been, if I've been doing three pounds for a while, then I need to move up to five pounds. If I've been doing five pounds, it's got to be up to seven pounds. And that's good. And look, but if you keep doing that, like eventually, you know, there's just going to be a threshold to where you can't really increase the load so much. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other ways we can 
So even for personal trainers that are listening to this that feel like, you know, they just can't lift any more weight, we can carefully and specifically change the cognitive loading. We can, you know, have people think about different things. We can change the speed at which we're moving. We can change the duration. So just like all these substrates we brought up before, we've got different ways of manipulating our exercise in order to try to eke out every possible adaptation we can reasonably get. Yeah. And I think the beauty of this, the podcast and what we're doing here is over time, we're going to explore lots of those methods uh, and get into some of the science behind them, which will be a lot of fun. But, you know, to your point, if you're, if you're new to this, if you're just starting out, um, yes, you're going to work at a relatively low comfortable level because that's where you need to begin. We also know that novices tend to show improvement mm-hmm. much more rapidly than people who have been doing this for a long time. That's a nature of the way this works. Um, but at the end of the day, if this, if your substrates are matched perfectly against the constraints, you'll solve a problem but the level of progression is going to start to level off. Mm-hmm. And to your point, we need to find ways of stimulating change. Another way that I like to put it is we need to create a mismatch. Mm-hmm. We need to create constraints, the problem, that are that much more difficult than we have prerequisite abilities. So mm-hmm. it forces us to adapt to the problem. And that adaptation can occur in a variety of places, in a variety of ways. And that's what we're going to get into in our next segment. Yep. Sounds good. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're talking about how we adapt to these different stimuli. And, you know, anything that anybody does, they're going to adapt to. So if I'm a runner and I want to go longer, I'm going to adapt to that. If I'm doing yoga, eventually I'll be able to achieve more extreme positions. Or Pilates is the same thing. If I'm in a high-intensity boot camp type class, I will adapt to that. So each one of those things will cause adaptation. And for those problems, we'll develop better solutions and we'll become more fit. Mm -hmm. The problem that I see with that approach is that you're fit for that thing. You're fit for that purpose. So you develop a fitness that's associated with that specific type of problem. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're fit. It means you have a fitness. So I'll give you an example. You know, a friend of mine used to work with a trainer and they did a lot of functional training and they did these functional measurement systems and he claimed that he felt good and he could move well. He could, in his mind, he could move well, but he certainly looked good. He had good muscle definition. And then I was living in California at the time and I took him on a hike in the, in the desert and he couldn't get over the rocks and boulders. He couldn't move. Mm-hmm. So he developed a fitness that was very appropriate for being right there in the gym, but he didn't have the kind of adaptation that was necessary to allow him to move in a different environment in a different context. So was he fit? Yeah, well, he was fit in a certain capacity, but did he achieve an overall level of fitness? No, he didn't because he ignored a lot of things that may have allowed him to accomplish those challenges. Right, so when we look at fitness through the lens of movement efficiency or how well we move, 
So I, to me, what it sounds like you're saying is that when we're fit for a certain task, it's like being, it's like how we use a certain tool. So a hammer, if you need to punch a nail into a wall, hammer is a fantastic tool to use. But if, right. if you need to screw something in and all you have is a hammer, you're pretty limited. Like, you know, it's not the ideal tool to use. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that ideally, and I, I, I very much agree with this, is that we should all have metaphorically, a really large toolbox when it comes to fitness to be able to adapt and be able to vary our capabilities to multiple tasks. And the way we do that is by exposing ourselves to multiple different types of training and fitness um, uh, applications. That's absolutely right. So those people who just like to run, well, maybe you should lift some weights. Those people who just lift some weights, well, maybe you should do some yoga. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about having a singular approach to fitness. It's about doing everything. It's about allowing yourself to experience all kinds of training because the adaptations that we're looking for are not always the obvious ones. They're beneath the surface. They're intracellular. Mm -hmm. They're structural. Those are things that we need to be able to change so that we could perform more intensely. We can perform longer we need to look at fitness as an ecosystem. So rather than developing fitness for one thing, mm -hmm. we can look at fitness as our ability to solve a multitude of problems. Mm -hmm. And that is what ultimately makes us fit. It's not just having a capability. It's having all capabilities. And the way to look at that from a fitness context is when people are telling you what not to do. Mm -hmm. Don't do this. I would never do this. Mm -hmm. Don't, this is not a good way to train. Mm -hmm. Forget it. Do everything. <laughs> it doesn't matter if someone doesn't like it. Everything can work. Everything mm -hmm. available to us has the capacity to create adaptation in our system, which allows us to solve more problems and therefore be more fit. There's another extreme version of that to me. So when I hear you say that, it makes me think of this fitness product that's been out there for a while that used to promote, part of their marketing was promoting this idea of this thing, muscle confusion, because what they were basically yeah, saying right. is that you should do everything. Well, you should within their exercise program, at least, but you should be... Well, they're selling, they're selling DVDs, aren't they? Yeah, but you should <laughs> be varying your exercise so much all the time. You should almost never do the same thing twice because you want... To, that's the best way to elicit these adaptations that we're talking about. So what do you think about that and from that end of the spectrum? First of all, folks, it, <laughs> there's no such thing as muscle confusion. Your muscles don't get confused. And by the way, if you think that just doing different exercises every day is somehow confusing your brain, <laughs> you know, then we haven't evolved very much since the cavemen. <laughs> so, I mean, come on. We have the ability to solve lots of problems, various problems. I mean, look at athletes and the way they instantaneously improvise you know, I, I was recently watching The Last Dance and just seeing some of the stuff that Michael Jordan did on the floor from an improvisational perspective. Yeah. Holy moly. But, you know, we can do that. So that stuff's not confusing us. So here's the interesting part of that. The implication there is that by doing something different every day, 
we're forcing a more rapid rate of adaptation. And I would argue that it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Adaptation does take time and it takes repeated stimulus to drive it, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if, if I'm a runner and I'm trying to improve the time over which I do a 10K, Mm -hmm. if I'm not running 10Ks, all right, I'm not going to run, I'm going to run today and I'm going to lift tomorrow and I'm going to do yoga the next day and I'm going to do something else the next day and Mm -hmm. I'm never going to do the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. You think I'm going to improve my running? (laughs) I mean, the only way to do it is to do it and do it repeatedly. So adaptation takes time. If you look at changes in weight training, we know, for example, when someone's a novice and they start training for the first time, most of their strength gains occur in the first two to three weeks. And we know that those are neural adaptations, Mm -hmm. which is another form of adaptation, by the Mm -hmm. way. But they don't start to see physical changes, morphological changes for six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. That's how long it takes things to change. So we tend to think that constantly varying the stimulus is going to help us adapt. And it really doesn't necessarily do that. Practice and repeated attempts at something is what causes improvement and adaptation. Right. And so, look, there's, I think there's a reasonable happy medium. So at one point we're saying, look, be open to trying a bunch of different things, put a bunch of different stresses on your body. And right. on the other end, that if you're actually trying to get better at a certain thing or you know, just even improve in some way, you've got to do it enough that, you know, your body begins to adapt to it. So that's right. Yeah. I mean, look, it, we're saying do everything. And, and I really do mean this, do everything. Like people will tell you never to use machines. Why not? Machines cause adaptation and those adaptations are good. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting everything that you want from the one exercise, Mm -hmm. but what it does do for you causes a significant amount of adaptation. Mm -hmm. So we want people to do everything. But what I'm not suggesting is that you do everything every day, all the time, changing it up so that you... We develop a program where for a certain period of time, we're working with one modality. And for Mm -hmm. a certain period of time, we're working with a different modality. Or we're mixing it and undulating it. But there's a balance of things that we're doing repeatedly, Mm -hmm. which will allow us to adapt in the best way possible. Right. Yeah. And look, in future episodes, we're going to talk about this concept of periodization, which is looking at things from a long view lens and it could be anywhere from a day to a week to a month to a year and we can definitely we'll definitely be breaking that stuff down in future episodes of you know that's right if if you are interested in doing a bunch of different modalities how what might be a reasonable way to go about it but yeah i think that i i totally agree with what you're saying is that we should be open to everything but we should we need to build skill and we need to build adaptation enough in the things that we're doing and that re- requires consistent effort in there and so we can't uh, to your point that you told me once if i want to learn how to play the guitar that i can't play the guitar on monday play the drums on tuesday play the piano on wednesday play the trombone on thursday and the tuba on friday and that will help me in my overall musicality but it's not going to necessarily help me become a better guitar player that's right and you know to further that analogy you know anyone who plays a stringed instrument like that knows when you start playing you know your fingertips get raw because of the friction on the strings mm-hmm. and Part of what you need to do is develop a little callus there. Right. And 
So yeah, if you if I'm using six different instruments and I'm playing each one on a different day, I will improve my overall sense of music theory and composition and capability. But I'm not developing calluses on my fingers where mm-hmm. I need that adaptation to occur. So we need to be thinking as as coaches and trainers and and fitness professionals, what type of problems are we solving? What kind of adaptation are we seeking? And how do we make sure that people are doing that? You know, I used to work in an orthopedic rehab setting and I work with ACL patients. And the first thing that happens after ACL surgery is you get atrophy in the vasti, mm-hmm. right? So what do I need to do with them to make sure that the vasti recover their strength and their mass and their ability to control motion at the knee? And there's so many different ways of doing that, but mm-hmm. I need to select things that create adaptation there. So we want people to adapt to a variety of things in order to get them to move more effectively. But by the way, and I know where people's minds are going right now, and they're going to say, well, this is functional training. <laughs> I'm like, wait, 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 wait. We are not talking about functional training yet. Wait, because to, wait till they hear what you did in the rehab. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to love to hear that. And by the way, that's a teaser because I'm not telling you until our next episode. Awesome. And so you're going to have to come back and listen to that. But um, yeah, functional training is a whole different thing. And we will get that going uh, in our next episode. But I think uh, we've pretty much covered it. What do you think, yeah, Gigi? Sounds good. Feels good. I think this is a good place to end it. So with that, I'm Paul Juris. I want to thank you for listening. If you want to reach out, please do. If you want to sling arrows at me, I've been taking them my whole life. So uh, you can reach me on my LinkedIn page or on Instagram. Please let me hear from you and uh, look forward to speaking to you next time. Gigi? Yep, and you can reach me at Gregory at exercise dash intelligence with a ce at the end so gregory at exercise dash intelligence.com and yeah please feel free we want to know what you guys are thinking we want to know what questions you have we would like to know as human movement science covers such an array of topics we would like to know what things you're interested in us doing a deep dive in so please feel free to reach out